0: this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light in him there is no darkness at all this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We are in 1 John for uh, one more week. This is it. We are finishing up this letter that John wrote. The Apostle John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote um, that to, most likely to be circulated among the churches. It doesn't really have anyone he directly addresses. And this is kind of written to the churches as John was older. Um, and he, he writes this letter to the churches. And we are finishing up today. We are going to look at where John says, this is why I wrote this. Um, so we're going to look at kind of his, his final conclusion. And the way this works today is we come to this section in 1 John 5 is there's this final conclusion. And then it's, it's kind of like um, when your teacher was finished teaching, had taught everything they needed to tell you on a subject. And then the bell rings and they, they shout a few things at you as you're walking out of the room. Uh, to kind of take with you, these they're they're important, but it's like the the main part of what he said is kind of concluding, and then he says, "Now take take this with you. Here's kind of what to do from here." And so we're going to pick up in First John chapter five, and we're going to look at verse eleven. We read this last week, but we're going to look at it again as we start this morning. Uh, so we'll pick up First John chapter five, verse eleven. Let's pray, and then we'll we'll get into the text. God, we ask that we would. Um, have ears to hear your word this morning, and that we would not be people who just hear it, but that we would respond. We pray for the work of your spirit this morning, that you would move, that you would convict, that you would encourage, uh, that we might uh, draw closer to you uh, in repentance, and that we might receive grace and joy and salvation and confidence in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, he says this, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John has said very clear, direct uh, message this whole time. And I want you to see how clear this line is. There's no ambiguity here uh, in the Scriptures. You have Jesus, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. And this life here is not uh, enjoyment and delight in this life, the way we might would say, yeah, I'm really living the life, living the good life. Uh, that's, that's not what he's meaning here. He means eternal life. Now, that does bring some delight and joy in this life, but not always. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is eternal life, that if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. That's what he says in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, I'm sorry. Carlos, can you turn me down a little bit? I want to get aggressive later, and I don't want to feel like I can't. All right. <laughs> Thank you. I was, I was hearing myself in my head too much. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his thesis. That's why he wrote this. That you may know that you have eternal life if you believe in Jesus That's the whole point of this letter, that you really genuinely believe. And we need to hear this because culturally, uh, in the South, we all know some things about Jesus. Maybe you've been told things about Jesus. Maybe when you were younger you said a prayer and you told him you believed in him. But the belief that is in 1 John is real, it's tangible, it affects life. It doesn't just mean that we know things, that we mentally agree with some things, but it means that we're banking on, trusting in Christ I have several friends who work in uh, financial uh, advising kind of work and one of them was telling me one time that they had a lady who was very wealthy and she invested all of her money in UPS and they would talk to her and say hey that's a lot of money you should probably diversify and she would say nope and then UPS would dip It would drop. She's losing money. The price of UPS would go way down. And sure enough, phone would ring. They'd answer. It'd be her. And she'd say, think I should buy some more UPS? It's cheaper now. And they're like, no. (laughs) But she would. And I heard recently she's doing quite well for herself. UPS is doing well right now. But she believed in UPS. She's trusting in UPS. She's got hope in UPS, and that's some of what he's talking about. When you trust in Jesus, have you actually begun to put weight there? Is your hope actually in Christ, or is it just something you've said, but there's no, uh, you have no skin in the game? You haven't actually begun to devote yourself to him, follow him, and have this show up in your life. And this is what he says over and over again, that it looks real. And we showed this triangle, John's love triangle, the, the love triangle that Christians can really get on board with. We we showed this uh, the other day, but this is what John says over and over and over again. We said it was like Mr. Miyagi's wax on, wax off. He just goes through this over and over and over again. But he says, if you believe in Jesus, you have the Father. That, That it's through Christ that we're brought in. It's through Christ that we're given salvation. This is not something that we earn or accomplish or do, but it's through Christ. But then once that happens, we love the Father and he loves us and we love the brothers. We love the church and that by loving the church we love the father and if we love the father we love the brothers and then it says if we love the brothers, we'll obey his commands and by obeying his commands that helps us love the brothers but obeying his commands also shows our love for the father and John in his letter goes through and basically covers each one of those up and says, if someone tells you they have the Father but they don't have Jesus, liar. And then he says, if they tell you they have the Father but they don't love the brothers, liar. And then he says, if they say they have the Father, but they don't obey his commands, liar. And he he doesn't mince words. He's pretty clear with his, this is what it looks like. And he does not say that these things save you. He says that Jesus saves you, but that once he remakes you, this is what you look like. Those are the these things that he's talking about in verse 13. When he says, I write these things, those are the these things that he's talking about. The stuff that he said over and over again, that Jesus came in the flesh, that he died for sinners, that we have hope in him, that he is the Christ, that those who believe in him are forgiven. And he said all this so that if you know if you have Christ, you know you have eternal life. His whole letter was meant to be encouraging. Have you trusted in Jesus? You have life, eternal life essential hope for eternity in Christ. Verse 14. Now, as we move on, that's his, that's his main point. And now, it's, like I said, it's a little bit uh, like the bell rings, and then he gives us things to, to kind of take with us. He's finished his main argument, and he's saying, now here's some things to, to know and to, to do from here. And as he says these things, there are a couple of places where if we misunderstand what he's saying, we can head in some odd territory theologically. So we'll have to a couple times try to tease some things out. But he says this in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, Jesus says this in John's gospel multiple times, the same idea, that if we pray according to the will of God, he answers our prayers. He says this in John 14, John 15 twice, and in John 16, Jesus repeatedly tells them that it's God's pleasure to answer the prayers of believers, that it's his pleasure and delight to to actually move through us praying in the name of Christ and to see things happen. This is an incredibly encouraging text for him to say, God hears your prayers and he responds to your prayers. Now, the way we could get a little sideways with this is to go, sweet, I'm a Christian, I can ask for whatever I want, and he'll give me whatever I want. He says, if we pray anything according to his will, this has actually been beneficial in my life. When I was in middle school, 7th, 8th grade, I used to pray, I I would read my Bible a lot, and I was like, I, would, I was like, okay, if you have faith, you can move mountains or whatever. And if you really come to the Lord in faith, he answers prayers. And I used to pray at, at night before I went to bed, trying to muster up as much faith as I could, that I would wake up with a full beard. That was my prayer. And not like the beginnings of a beard, a beard. Like I wanted to wake up looking like Gimli from Lord of the Rings or something. A ZZ Top. Uh... And God apparently didn't have that in his will for me to have that happen in 7th and 8th grade. And actually, I really appreciate that's a That's a kind of a trivial example of God's grace towards me in all the prayers he hasn't answered. Because the, the hope we have here is that he hears us and that he responds and that our prayers are effective. And that he's good enough to move according to his goodness and his wisdom for us. And so that there's this great encouragement here on both sides that he does hear our requests and that you can come to him with specific requests, praying and trusting that in his goodness he answers prayers. I don't know if these are related. I like to think that they are. I have two brothers and I am the only one capable of growing a full beard. And it brings me great joy. Now, maybe they prayed that they would be able to get a tan and I never thought to pray for that. My skin turns red and falls off. (laughs) I actually passed that on to my younger son. When we took him out the first time and we put sunscreen on him, we could not tell where it went. Like we wiped it on and I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to take forever because there was no way to tell if it was on him or not. So anyway, okay, lost my train of thought there. Let's keep going. He answers prayers and he continues with that. And he goes into verse 16. He's going to press on this idea that we would have confidence in our faith in him to pray. And then he specifically tells us something to pray for. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So you see your brother in sin, you pray on behalf of your brother, and God gives life, that he works in that situation to bring about redemption. It says, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay. John actually says something that's pretty straightforward here. Then he says a whole lot of other things as he's saying that. So that his main point here is if you see a brother in sin, pray for them and God brings about repentance. He brings about life. He brings about redemption. That's what he said. But that's not what we heard. I know if I was in school and John was doing this, my hand would be up before he was even done. And he would say, yes, annoyed with me because I would raise my hand a lot. Just so you know, I did this in school. Yes. What's a sin that leads to death? Would be my question. What, what is what on what are you to, what was that that you said there? And thankfully, John hasn't mentioned this mentioned this before. He doesn't mention it again. This is all we get. He just says it and moves on. And I was being sarcastic when I said thankfully. That's not very helpful. This is just what he says. So you want to ask this question. It's like, I want to hear what you said, and he did say something positive. He told us a command, but, but what is this whole thing about sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death? I feel like we should understand what that is. So we're going to try to answer that question first. Here's the thing. This is the only place that this is mentioned in the New Testament. It's the only place it's mentioned in John. It's the only place it's mentioned in the New Testament. There's not even Old Testament real clear references to what he would be talking about in these two categories. And so here's what happens. When you come across something like this that's a little unclear, what you do is you look at the immediate context, what came right before it, what comes right after it. Sometimes the the author will define their terms. You look at the context of the book it's in, the letter it's in. You look at the context of all of Scripture. And so what we're able to do this morning is to rule some things out. I think we can make that category uh, smaller. We can try to understand it a little better, but I can't give you a definitive, here's exactly what he meant. Because he doesn't give that to us, and nowhere in the scriptures does he give that to us. But I think we can say it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this. And this is helpful, because what happens often with passages like this is that that's the correct approach. You zoom out, you try to figure out, okay, well, if this says this, and it could be taken this way, it could mean that there are some specific sins that you commit that are sins that lead to death. You need to know what those are, because they're immediately disqualifying. But then you read other passages, and you go, well, that actually doesn't seem like that's what that could mean. And so you change it. But there are times where people use these little obscure kind of passages as if they're like the secret door to like a speakeasy or something. Like, you know, the secret knock and then the little slit opens and just the eyes pop out. And if you can just figure out, oh, we found it. If we just dig into this one and if you really understand what's going on, then you'll be in on all the Bible secrets. And it's like, that's, that's not helpful. And it honestly, is a little weird for John to do in his letter. He just said, I wrote this letter so that you can have confidence in Christ, that if you believe in Christ, you know, you know that you have eternal life. And then he goes, unless you commit one of the secret sins, got to go. It's like, wait, what? And he's like, oh, nothing. It's like, no, that, that can't be what he's doing. So people would look at this and say, maybe there's a list of sins, that if you commit that one, that's a sin leading to death. And people have thrown out guesses. People have guessed murder, adultery, suicide. They'll try to fill that list out. The problem is we have no textual textual defense for that here or, or elsewhere. The Catholic Church teaches mortal sin and venial sin. Or they, they have the teaching of the seven deadly sins, which would you would think, oh, maybe that's what it's talking about. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about seven deadly sins in any kind of different way from normal sin. So here's what we know about sin. All sin leads to physical death. And all sin not redeemed in Christ leads to eternal death. That's flat, basic teaching of the scriptures over and over again. The wages of sin is death. We will all die. And in Adam, we are all born into that, that we uh, inherit sin and that we choose sin and that we all deserve death. But that through Christ, we can have eternal life. So When he gives these two categories, he does seem to have in mind some sort of a sin, some sort of a behavior, some sort of an action that is um, something that leads to this eternal death, not just physical death, but some sort of something that leads to eternal death. I don't think that we can just pick a particular type of sin, one, because I don't think we have any backing for that, and two, because he's already said in his letter that sins that are repented of are forgiven. First John 1 John 1:9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not like he put an asterisk and said, see chapter 5, except for those secret ones that I'm not going to tell you about. Best of luck. He's, he's saying, no, that we we actually, he says in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he says, if you're watching a brother and they're committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, pray for them. He says, but not sins that lead to death. I don't think he even considers that brothers, true brothers, the way that he's taught us this entire time can actually commit sins that lead to eternal death because he consistently says, if you have Jesus, if you're a real brother, he works in you, he brings about this redemption. He even says in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, when he's talking about people who've left the faith, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John seems to have a really clear line Brothers stay, brothers continue to believe, brothers repent. And if they don't, they weren't brothers. So here's what I think he's saying. If you see a brother that you understand... Because the way that we understand who is a brother is they tell us. And then he gives us some things as we go through that he says, well, they probably aren't. They're probably lying, if. But if you see a brother or sister in Christ, and they're in sin... Pray for them, and God will respond. God will work on their behalf. But then he gives this category of sins that lead to death, and I think textually from John or from the rest of Scripture, he has in mind one of two things. He potentially, and, and people land in different areas on this because it's unclear. I will tell you that you can rejoice in the fact that whenever there's a random little thing like this that uses a phrase that isn't used elsewhere, it's not a major point of doctrine, God tried to make everything clear. He came to rescue us. Paul tells us that that Jesus is the mystery revealed, not that there's new extra mysteries to find out. It's possible that John has in mind, because he was a disciple of Jesus, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's the one sin that Jesus mentions that will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. So it's possible John just says, I understand there's a category for a type of sin that is unforgivable And basically, that's not what I'm talking about. I think that's unlikely, but some people say that they think that maybe John just had that in mind. I think John has in mind what he's been talking about this entire time, which is this triangle of what a Christian looks like. And I think what he's saying is if you have a brother or sister that he's been talking about the whole time and saying they left, they're liars, they're not really a part of us, because he's been doing this line in the sand over and over again. I think what he's saying is if you're walking with a brother or sister and they actually... Say they're a brother, but they reject Jesus? That they have what he calls the spirit of the Antichrist? That they, they reject Jesus? He, verse, uh, 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Then I think he would say they're committing sins that put in the category of they're actually walking towards eternal destruction. Or if he says, if they say they're a brother, but they, they, they're, they know the father, but they hate the brothers. Or they know the father, but they're walking in unrepentant, consistent sin. The things that he's talked about. That they just say, I don't have to repent of this. This is fine. I, and the reason I think that's what he's walling off here is because of the way that he words this in verse 16. He says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So that, I do not say that one should pray for that, is written in Greek oddly. I don't read Greek, but I read commentaries of people who read Greek. And they told me that sentence is weird. And here's what they said. John says everything really directly, forcefully. He hasn't minded doing that at all. Some of you have been frustrated with John because he's just been really clear. You can't argue with what he's trying to say. He just didn't like what he had to say kind of like Raz on our pastor team. (laughs) He's really clear. That's what John's doing. He's just been really clear. This sentence is not really clear. This is actually what it, if you translated it literally, not concerning that, do I say he should request? And what they're saying is that he doesn't say don't pray for that. He says that type is not what I'm telling you to pray about which just leaves this weird opening that you could pray about it, but that's not what he's talking about. And the reason why I think that's what he's saying is because if you look back at verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, then he gives a promise, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So he has this promise, God will give him life. In between, not leading to death, not leading to death, And I think the reason he specifies I'm not talking about this other category is because he's promising God will answer. That's why I think it's worded the way that it's worded. What he's saying is, if you see a brother or sister in sin, pray for them, and I have beautiful news for you. God, in his grace, leads Christians to repent. God, through the empowerment of his spirit, brings them back. Plead on their behalf. Because I can promise you, God will not lose a believer, but he will bring them back to eternal life. But, but, the type of rejection of the gospel type sins that he's been talking about, he's not mentioning, he's not saying that for them, because I don't think he can promise that God will bring about repentance you're walking with someone who rejects Jesus and is living out what he calls the spirit of the antichrist is is against Christ I don't think he can promise you that God's going to give him life I think that's why he's worded it this way now there are other people who would who would approach that differently but that's my understanding as I've studied it that he's basically stepping around those and saying if they've been living out all the things I've been telling you are the marks of an unbeliever pretending to be a believer I can't promise that they'll repent but let's not get hung up there because what he says is actually really beautiful. If you see a brother or sister in sin, pray for him because God in his grace is gonna give them life. Not, not because he, he says he will. So the question for us isn't to raise our hand and ask John what's a sin that leads to death. The, what we ought to do is ask ourselves, do I pray for my brothers and sisters when I see him in sin? If you're close enough with somebody their sin is usually annoying unless you participate in it with them. There's another category where you don't mind their sin because it excuses. You don't do it with them, but you, you, it excuses some other sin that you have. So you're cool with them being a sinner as long as you're a sinner, and that one's kind of okay with you. But in general, a lot of times, the sin that we have in, in church family and with our brothers and sisters, with people we're married to or room with... It's frustrating. Do we pray for them? Do we ask God to help them? Do we ask God to grant them repentance? Do we ask for the Holy Spirit to go to work in them? Or are we just annoyed? This gives us two people, the Bible gives us two people that you can talk to when you see them in sin. Them and God. Noticeably absent from that list is other people. It's just a bonus I'm throwing in there for us today. You can go to them and say, Hey, I think you're in sin. I think you need to repent. Or you can go to God and say, Hey, would you grant them that they're 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 fighting and I, I would you would you work for your Holy Spirit? And the promise is that He will. For those who are genuine brothers. So He says, God hears us when we pray according to His will, and then He says, Let me tell you something that's according to His will. Christians repenting of sin and walking in obedience. Pray for them. It's encouragement. To walk out trusting God and praying for one another that we would stay far from sin. And this is what he says, verse 18. He's going to end with three we know. We know, we know, we know statements. He says this in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Here's another passage that's extremely encouraging, but we could get sideways on, so... We just need to clarify something. When he says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, what he means is those who've been made new by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has indwelled them, has renewed them. When he says they don't keep on sinning, he does not mean they eventually get to where they never sin. That's, that's not in line with what he says in the rest of his book. What he means is they do not make a practice of sin in such a way that they become okay with it. The genuine believers are not never as the Holy Spirit indwells them, become okay with sin. They can't just pick one and say, this one's fine. Recently, and culturally, we've had our whole denominations pick things that the Bible says is sin, uh, specifically in, in sexual sin, and just said, this one isn't sin anymore. And he just says, that's not how it works. We're not allowed to do that. We can't just pick things and say, this isn't sin. This one's okay, this one's fine for me. He says, no, Christians will be led to repentance. And this is what he says throughout. So. Christians do sin. 1 John 8 and 10. I'm just going to read these. I want you to, to listen. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, like a current have no sin. And then he says if we say we have not sinned, so like past, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John starts off by saying you're a sinner. But in the middle of those two verses, he says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read this earlier, but he says, I wrote this so that you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father. He doesn't say, and if anyone does sin, kick them out. They're not really a Christian. (laughs) Nobody would be here. I'm glad he doesn't say that. What he says is, in our sin, we have an advocate, we have forgiveness, we have hope. But then he says this in John 3, he says it twice. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That's what he's saying in verse 18. We know that God leads Christians to repentance. Not, this is the beautiful part for Christians, not to say that you gain and lose your salvation, not to say that if you're in the middle of sin and on your way home today, you slide off the road and you hit a tree and that's it for you that you had to have been perfectly prayed up or perfectly forgiven. Or maybe you're doing pretty well until you started sliding off the road and then you yelled out something very colorful that's frowned upon. And that was it. Those were your last two seconds. My grandmother got in a a wreck one time and she shouted out really loudly, Lord, I'm coming home. But for most of us, that's not what we're shouting. Maybe that's you, but for a lot of people, that's not you. And what he doesn't say is, if you sin, and no, what he's saying is, if you make that a practice, if that's a way of life for you, if you just become accustomed to it, and you grow used to it, and you just say, this is mine, this is fine, I'm okay, that's what he's talking about. But hear the encouragement here. Some of you are in the midst of a battle with your flesh and you feel like it's winning. I don't know about y'all, I get so sick of myself sometimes. It's like, come on, this again? Really? What is wrong with you? I, I really agree with Paul where he says, he calls himself, like he just says, what a wretched man that I am. There's something wrong with me. If you're in the middle of that, Cling to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that's Christ, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know if you belong to Jesus, your sin doesn't win. It will not drag you to hell. That's its claim. That's its threat. That's the power of the enemy. But Christ has disarmed the enemy on our behalf. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the the power of the evil one. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now that's, that's a claim. Don't miss that. There's a, there's a classic movie um, with the guy from It's, it's a Wonderful Life uh, called The Man Who Knew Too Much. I've never seen that. I've seen Bill Murray's movie The Man Who Knew Too Little, which should be a classic. In The Man Who Knew Too Little, Bill Murray shows up to visit his brother in London, and his brother doesn't want to hang out with him because he's Bill Murray. If you've ever watched any Bill Murray movies, you wouldn't want him to be your brother either. And so what his brother does is he sets him up with like one of the very first um, reality TV shows. And basically the way it works is he's supposed to go to this phone booth, Bill Murray's going to get a phone call, and then he's going to be taken into a situation where everybody's an actor and they have hidden cameras, and he's the only one who's just a regular person, and he's supposed to just live out his sesbian dreams of being an actor and being on TV and When he answers the phone in this phone booth, it's not that group, it's someone calling for a hitman, and they give him specific instructions on someone to go murder, and he gets swept up in this very uh, dangerous multinational plot, and the whole time he thinks it's a joke. So he tries to redo scenes. People pull guns on him, and he's like, you'll never pull a gun on me. And he goes, no, that wasn't good. Let me try again. Like, he does that multiple times. He argues with the cops. Someone's breaking down and crying, and he's like, how do you do that? How do you make yourself cry? I just couldn't. Do you think about, like, maybe a puppy that died, and they're, like, really having a hard time, and he's like, my dog died, and he's just trying to. But the whole time, he just works his way through this whole situation, and everything is terrifying, and the stakes couldn't be higher, and he's oblivious to it. And there's a danger for us to just skim over past, uh, verses like verse 19 and be oblivious to what it just said to us. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That we have a real enemy and he has real authority. The Bible Jesus speaks about him having a kingdom. He's called the Prince of the Power of the Air, He's called the God of this world, that he is at work. To destroy and to rob people of joy and to keep people from Christ and to drag people to hell. And it doesn't say this to us to make us fearful. His whole point here is that we would have confidence in Christ, that we would have rest in Christ.